Hey guys, it's Steve from Briar Systems Podcast. Check out ownyourkeys.com. It's our newest site. We launched January 26th, 2023. And we're getting a lot of people who want to come to our site and learn how to own their keys. People aren't trusting centralized exchanges anymore, and they're taking their crypto off. But before you do that, you guys need some information. Do your own research as always, but we've sourced some great, safe, responsible information, utilities, and tools for you guys to use. And that way you could own your own crypto, keep it safe in your own wallet, or even take it a step further and explore the blockchain. You know, learn how to mint NFTs or maybe build your own project. But till then, guys, stay safe. And like always, this is not financial advice. All right, guys, enjoy the podcast. All right, guys, welcome to Briar Systems Podcast. We got Stock Vision in the house. He is uh, born from the United States Marine Corps. He ran around the Valley of Death for a little while, you know. He's a very cool dude. <laughs> he has a fantastic <laughs> personality, and none of that came from having an easy life. <laughs> I'd like to welcome you all to Stock Vision, man. What's going on, bro? What's up, man? Thanks for having me on. I'm I'm stoked to be here, dude. Appreciate it. Dude, thanks for coming on. So, you know, I definitely wanted to get you on here. You're one of the coolest dudes that I've met throughout Twitter Spaces. You have some pretty awesome stories. You have an awesome job. You know, some people think that what I do sometimes is cool, but what you do, dude, <laughs> like, <laughs> that's a dream from some dude who, like, finished out all the tours and whatnot. They're just stateside, blowing shit up, teaching people how to do shit. It's awesome. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I guess so. It, it makes me old, though. <laughs> My body thinks it's time to stop. <laughs> hey, at least you get old, you know? There's a lot of people didn't get that option, you know what I mean? At least you get yeah. to get old. It's yeah. not, oh, I had to get old. Yeah. Well, tell that to my back. Every morning I wake up, I'm like, oh, man, I shouldn't have done all that fun stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and then you remember about the fun stuff, and then it's all better, man. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Then you go and do more fun stuff. It's like the Marine Corps, <laughs> change your mind. It's like, hey, I'm an adrenaline junkie now. And once I get going, it's like a freight train. I can't stop. I'm going to pay for it tomorrow. But right now, I'm feeling good. <laughs> Bro. So let's uh let's talk about, like, when you were, like, a little jarhead. Uh, you know, what was your younger life before the Marine Corps? Oh, man. Can you hear me? I can hear you now. Okay, cool. Yeah, it cut out for a second. No, um, I keep getting a phone call. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Are you in All trouble right. with the wife or something? <laughs> oh, always. Always. Oh. Yeah, it's always like that. Yeah, it, keep, it keeps life interesting. <laughs> no, uh, let's see. Before the Marine Corps, man, I had zero direction. Uh, it was, it was. It, it, it was interesting. I, I didn't know what I was going to do or what I was going to like. I had like I really didn't have any plans. It was crazy. Right. And then uh, one day just I, I remember uh, the story goes right. And 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 it's a hilarious story. But I was at home one day and I had just broken up with my with my girlfriend at the time. And this is before cell phones and everything. Yeah, I'm that old. Uh, and my ex-girlfriend's sister called me and she was like hey you know I just got in an argument with my husband things got physical can you come and pick me up and take me to my sister's house 
And I was like, yeah, you know, it's, it's cool. So I went and picked her up and I took her over to my sister, or her, her, my ex's house. Right. And my ex was there and she came out and she was yelling. I mean, and I, and understandably so, right? Like, what would you think if you saw your newly ex-boyfriend come out of the car with your sister? Right. So she came out, she was yelling at me. We're, we're arguing back and forth. And this guy walks by and he says, Hey, do you know whose social security card this is? And just shows me this random guy's social security card. And I was like, I don't know. Like, how am I supposed to know that? Get away from me. And uh, he was like, okay, you know, thanks. And then he turns around. He's like, hey, are you a Marine? And I said, no. He says, have you ever thought about it? And I was like, where do I sign? (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's like the best psychological fucking pickup line ever. Hey, you want to sign your life over to me? This situation looks fantastic. I'm going to exploit it immediately. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I remember I turned and looked at my ex, and, and her eyes were huge, right? And she was like, don't you do it. And I was like, oh, yeah, we're doing this. We're, go- we're going full out. Right? <laughs> Spite move. Spite move. Oh, yeah. Totally healthy well, it, reason. It, it, well, it wasn't until later, you know, I was telling one of my buddies a story, and he goes, uh, he was like, do you realize that you just joined the, the hardest branch of the military? And I was like, oh, no. Like, <laughs> what did I do to myself? <laughs> So yeah, that that's how I came to join the Marine Corps. So, I mean, and I talked to a lot of people in boot camp, like, you know, they were like, I did it for the education, or I did it for the benefits, or I did it because of the lineage, I did it to see the world. And here I am, I'm like, yeah, I did it because I, my ex-girlfriend was mad at me. <laughs> yeah, true story. So, <laughs> so that's, that's how I, that's how I, that, that was, that was young stonk right there. That was how I, uh. Oh, and, and ever since then, it's kind of been a, a pretty much go with the flow type thing. You know, things things land on my lap and, and I just go with it. And so far, so good, I guess you could say. What year was that? Uh, man, this was in 1998. And I remember I was in a delayed entry program. Uh, I forgot however, however many months. And I ended up going to boot camp in March of 1999. How far? And don't you live in San Diego? Like, was it close? No, I was actually living in a small farm in, in Texas, a little small farming community. I mean, oh. so uh, I had never, well, I had been to New Mexico one state over one time when I was like 10 right. and past that I'd never been out of the state. So, so coming to, to San Diego and just seeing the culture and all the people and, you know, the, the ocean, I was like, wow, this is insane. So it was, it was like, it was a big time culture shock. Oh, absolutely, man. It's a, uh... I was in the same thing. I lived in a little town in Massachusetts, never really left the state. And then next thing you know, I'm on a flight to like Paris Island. And it's like, it's like a 12 hour bus ride from the airport. I don't even know. I don't even remember where we landed. All I know is you couldn't breathe. It felt like we were drowning. Yeah. But yeah, man. So San Diego, let's, we'll go into the boot camp a little bit. So. Uh, you were in the delayed entry program. Did you recruit anybody? You know, did you level up before you got there? Well, I, I, I asked my cousin to come with me, right? I was like, Hey man, I need some support. And he was all about it. And then he, he dropped out probably a week before we were supposed to, to leave for boot camp. So nope. Wow. I went in did, solo dolo. <laughs> did they let him drop out? How the fuck did, how does that work? Did he swear in? Well, I guess when you go to, to, to maps the the in processing station or whatever mm-hmm. they uh you can you can decide not to go all the way up until they swear you in a second time oh so yeah he was like i'm not gonna do this hmm. 
So yeah. I mean, he always. I mean, to this day, he's like, dude, I should have gone with you, but yeah. you know, then we were we were young, we were stupid. So oh yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty. Hey, it is what it is. You know what I mean? You get oh, some yeah. pretty exotic experiences, exotic situations. Not mm-hmm. a whole hell of a lot of it, you know, relates to civilian life. But uh, what was uh, what was your mentality? Were you just like gung ho Marine Corps? Like, did you? think you were going to do 20 years or what was your plan you know what so so joining the marine corps right i whenever we were picking our occupational specialties i wanted something easy so i went communications right i I was like okay you know that's cool uh it wasn't until they were issuing out our first units and telling us where we were going to go that I found out I was going to go to an infantry battalion, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so at first I was bummed out. I was like, you know what? Like this sucks. Like, what did I do to myself? Like, you know, it's all my my ex's fault. You know, I hate her. You know, all this other stuff. But after a while, I was like, you know what? If I'm if I'm gonna do this, I might as well go all the way. I might as well be like the guy on the poster. You know, it's not gonna suck any less. Might as well make it suck all the way. So. uh so that, yeah so that's the mentality i had i ended up i ended up doing uh 10 years in the marine corps oh yeah so man it was, it was pretty cool yeah dude that's awesome so okay you get assigned the communications where'd you go to school did you train with uh with infantry well i i went to the field radio operators course in 29 palms california and then i ended up getting stationed with third marine third battalion seventh marines in 29 palms so, uh, you know, all the other Marines in my, my class in the operators course class, they were getting cool duty stations like Hawaii and Camp Pendleton and Okinawa and Iwakuni, Japan, and all these other. And, and I remember the instructor looking at me and he, he called me, he called my name and I was like, yeah, it's my turn. Like what, what exotic location am I going to go to? And he was like, you're going right down the street. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and 29 Palms is like the middle of nowhere, desert. It gets really, really hot in the summer, really, really cold in the winter. It just, it was not fun. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I it it I ended up making a good time out of it. It it was it was a great experience. That's awesome, man. Hey, so uh, did they bring you to the donkey show when you made PFC, or how'd that work? I'm sorry. No, I luckily luckily uh, <laughs> luckily war kicked off. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. no i was i was actually in trouble uh my second week into my new unit in my, in my infantry unit one of the guys was he was getting out of the marine corps he'd already done his four and they were throwing a party for him and uh you know we were all at the house drinking and i was 20 at the time so you know we're getting ready to leave and 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 I, let me back up right my ex-girlfriend that i went to the marine corps for we ended up getting married after boot camp right <laughs> so yeah so let me preface this story with that <laughs> of course you did of oh course. yeah <laughs> so uh so i have her there right and, and you know everybody's hanging out everybody's drinking having a good time and then right as we were getting ready to leave she was like hey who are those guys in uniform coming through the back uh the backyard <laughs> right and i turned around it was the mps so I actually ended up getting arrested two weeks into me being in in my in my new unit. So uh, so yeah, I was restricted for a really long time. Didn't get a chance to go to the donkey show. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, 
Hey man, you lucked out. It's a, it's all good. Oh, two, yeah. <laughs> two people who lucked out of, uh, you know, missing that experience. Yeah, I, I've, I've heard, I've, I've heard mixed reviews. Let's just say that. <laughs> well, before I even went to boot camp, like, uh, my staff started, he's like, we're bringing it as soon as you get to California, you're going to the donkey show. It's like, that's it. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, oh, no, nothing. Never mind. We're just going to Tijuana. I'm like, why are we going to Tijuana? Like, why would we go to Mexico at all? <laughs> We're going to go in our uniforms? He's like, no, no, we go in civilian clothes. They don't know where we are. He's like, well, I don't care. I don't... <laughs> what, the what are they going to do to me? <laughs> yeah, I don't get it. He's like, don't worry, you're going to get an accomplishment. What the fuck do they call those things? They... <laughs> like, they have one of those, they roll out like an alkylate you can hang on your wall. <laughs> Just going to the Tijuana doggy show. No, I'm not about it at all. Thank you. <laughs> wow. Okay, so back to this. The MPs snag you. Did you have any kind of representation in your life? Like, uh, did you call JAG or probably not? No, I, I, well, I, I was I was a young private first class in the Marine Corps, right? So I didn't know anything about what was happening. I just knew that I was in trouble. Uh, so while I was standing there in my company commander's office, and they're they're getting ready to burn me, man. Like they were like, yeah, we're just gonna nuke this kid. Like we're just gonna cook him right here. So one of my one of my gunnies steps in and he was like, hey, sir, uh, I think this kid is salvageable. So the CO is like, hey, OK, well, what do you suggest? And the gunny was like, let's send him to the infantry squad leaders course. <laughs> 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 so it's it's all like these really angry, super senior infantry guys. Right. And they know their stuff. And here I am a little private first class and a non infantry MOS. I don't know anything about what's going on. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was the worst, what was it? Two months of my life. Like it was, it was rough, man. And these guys, they made me carry everything because I was not infantry. I wasn't, I, I wasn't a, the, the right rank to be in the class. It was, it was, it was murder, right. For two straight months. And then, uh, I ended up graduating top five of the class. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so I always, I always, I always, attr- the the whole underage drinking incident with putting my life on the trajectory that it's on right now because you know after that i was i was seen as like uh you know being multifaceted i could run a squad an infantry squad and then i could also run my own communications as well so uh that's where my my leadership journey really took off from was was from that that one story Dude, that's so, awesome, man. It's fantastic. <laughs> we can't see the blessings from trees, right? I, Trials yeah, and tribulations exactly. is what builds you, and that's the entire motto of the Marine Corps, right? So yeah. The more that you go through, the harder you're going to get. Uh, Absolutely. The more experience you're going to be able to convey, the better decisions you're going to be able to make under pressure. Mm-hmm. So, as, yeah. you know, you were a masochist young. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah, that's me. <laughs> In the rest of the Marine Corps, don't get it twisted, bro. You were like, I graduated boot camp. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and you know, I was I was just talking about to say, like, man, I'm 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 like Forrest Gump. I just kind of went along with stuff. Like, oh, this happened, cool. I'm gonna do that, or that this happened, cool. I'm gonna do that. Uh, but yeah, it was it was pretty intense. And then, uh, yeah, and then, you know, it was wild because. You know, the only thing that happened all the way up until 2001. So, I mean, it was a lot of training operations. We, we deployed to Japan, you know, in that, in that time frame. 
uh, but really nothing happened. It was all uniform inspections and, you know, going out to the field and, and, and doing like, you know, just training ops and stuff like that. And then September 11th happened, which totally changed everything. I remember uh, I was sitting at home because my daily routine is I would I would come downstairs or I would prep my uniform at night. And then in the morning, I would wake up, shine my boots, turn on the news, iron my camis, my uniform, and then I'd go to work. Uh, I remember turning on the TV and seeing, you know, reruns of this plane hitting this building over and over. And, you know, I, I start to think it's a movie. I was like, you know, like this, these are the best graphics ever. I mean, it's 1999, like, you know, the graphics weren't that good back there, but I was like, wow, this looks really real. Like that's, that's pretty cool. So I call my wife downstairs and she was like, no, like somebody actually crashed the plane into the building. That's crazy. And so I'm sitting here like, what kind of idiot? would would fly a plane like you got to be able to see these big towering buildings like why would you crash a plane into a building like that and then I remember she was standing next to me and she was like you know if this was a terrorist attack right now would be the perfect time to do it again because the entire world is watching and then as soon as she said that not even two minutes later the next plane hit uh the other tower so I looked at her and I was like I need to get to work right now we're going to war and and after that it was all go no quit Hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, describe the situation of panic with before cell phones and uh, communication capabilities. Well, so, so I remember that day, uh, and this is where it really hit me, right? I remember that day, it, it took me two hours just to get on to 29 Palms because we lived out in town. So it took me two hours to get through the gate. And as soon as I got into, uh, onto the base, the battalion was loading out. And I go to my gunny and I'm like, hey, what's going on? What do I need to do? He's, he goes, you need to go home and grab everything. And I was like, what does that mean? And he was like, everything the Marine Corps has ever given you, minus your dress uniform and your service uniform, grab that, get back here now. And I was like, how long are we going to be gone? He was like, I don't know. So, you know, I got home and I tell my wife, like, hey, we're going somewhere. I don't know where the hell we're going. Apparently, there's still planes crashing all over the country. I'll see you later. And she was like, well, when are you coming back? I was like, I don't know, you know? So, you know, nowadays I, you know, I could get to a country and, and send an email or, you know, phone call or something. Back then it was like, I don't know if I'm going to ever talk to you again. I don't know if it's going to be a month, two months, three months, nine months before I'm able to tell you what's going on in my life, much less get an update from my family back here. So uh, that was way nerve wracking. Uh, Luckily, they took us to March Air Force Base and, and we sat there for, I think it was like 12 hours, 14 hours, something like that. And they came back and said our mission was canceled. So luckily we got to go home the next day. But uh, that was when the reality of the way the world had changed that day had set in. And then not too long after that, man, we're, we're going into Iraq. What was the specific mission immediately? I, we, we still don't know to this day. I'm assuming because, uh, I mean, you've seen the movie, was it 13 strong or whatever? The, the one with Delta guys going to, to Afghanistan. I'm assuming uh, our mission had something to do with that, but I mean, I, who knows? They, they didn't tell us anything. Oh yeah. I heard a lot of rumors back then because my friend's husband was a ranger and he was in Afghanistan that first month. So, I mean, they may have knew, known things better than anybody, but I grew up right offside base, Westover Air Force. And all my friends' parents were retired military. 
Um, oh, yeah. So we were like in-depth briefed on communism, the news sources every night, conflicts, um, the psychological warfare. Like my buddy's mom was a Secret Service sniper um, for D.C., but before that she was a sniper United States Army stationed at Ramstein Air Force Base and uh, just all over the world. And then his dad was a master sergeant in the Air Force at, um, what the hell is that base in Colorado? The satellite command base, NORAD. Uh-huh. Oh, uh, NORAD, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, he was at NORAD. My foster father was on the USS Enterprise when it went nuclear. And uh, my foster mother's last name was like maiden last name was Devons. So like Fort Devons was actually named after her extended family. Oh wow. Yeah. And she was an army brat. It was pretty it was pretty an interesting way of life growing up, you know what I mean? Because all I mean, we were super briefed on communism. So we sat on top of like my grandparents' house waiting for the bombs to start falling. Uh God they did. Well, you know, we were convinced it was Russia. It was like the 20th year anniversary of the fall of communism. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, the 10th year anniversary of the fall of communism, which started August like 26, 1991. And then it was official by like 9-11-1991 that communism was going to just completely collapse over in the Soviet Union. So we thought it was like shots back at that. And then people are like, oh, it's Afghanistan. Fucking Afghanistan. What? Where is Afghanistan? <laughs> well, it's just like the people who make the weed, the red hair. <laughs> yep. The, the weed country. Well, they make heroin and honey, too. I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, it's, it's like, crazy. I thought I knew something. I guess I didn't know as much as I thought I knew. But it is what it is. And... um you know, you guys, you guys were out there. You went through it. I was 16 at the time. So I was oh, just, nice. yeah, I was just a little kid running around. You know, I was like, oh, Wolverines, we're all going to join the Marine Corps. <laughs> and then I was the only dumbass who actually fucking went through with it. The rest of the world. <laughs> Everybody's like, yeah, forget that. Yeah. It's fucked up. So, all right, uh, your mission gets canceled. Uh, how much longer between stage A, mission canceled, to you guys, again, briefed on our Iraq? Uh, well, it wasn't until 2000 and, well, the end of 2002, so December around there, where uh, we saw things starting to to get weird in Iraq, right, with the whole WMDs and, and all that other stuff. But, I mean, it was like with anything else. We're going, we're not going, we're going, we're not going. And... uh you know, I got another another funny story. Like my my entire Marine Corps career is funny stories. So, so that was about the time that I had reenlisted uh, for another contract in the Marine Corps. And, you know, Iraq was Iraq was getting hot and heavy. You know, uh, politically, right? So, you know, they would they would tell us, "Hey, we're going. Get ready." And then we're not going. And then we're going. And then we're not going. And that happened a whole bunch of times. So in my enlistment, I got to choose where I wanted to go, where my next duty station was. And between the time that I had joined the Marine Corps in 1999 to 2001, right before September 11th, I had been to Okinawa, Japan on on the unit deployment program. 
So I was like, man, this would be really cool if I could bring my family here so they could see a different part of the world. So I had uh, I had chosen Okinawa as my next duty station in, you know, uh, it was third Marine division comm company out there. Right. So, so I, I, you know, I had orders and I tell my gunny one day, like, Hey, do I execute these orders? And he was like, yep. Send all your shit to, to Okinawa. We're probably not going to Kuwait. Just, you know, go ahead and execute. So I was like, okay, cool. So I packed up my wife, I, you know, packed the whole house. We're getting ready to go. A few days before I was supposed to, to, to leave to Japan with my entire family, the unit comes to me and they're like, Hey, you're going advanced party to Kuwait. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so I was, I was like, uh, what about all my stuff that's on a boat on its way to Japan? He was like, Hey, you'll pick that up later. And, and my wife and kids were like, well, what do we do? I was like, I don't know, man. I'm, I'm going to war apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so same thing like when are we going to hear from you again i was like i don't know <laughs> so uh so yeah ended up going advanced party to kuwait and and setting up uh out there and then you know eventually went into iraq wow man you know the sacrifices that families make just for uh you know it says marine corps to function in proper proper manner where you guys you have the collateral to fight for at home you know the hearts and minds of your family a nuclear family that seems to have deteriorated significantly over the past 20 years. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. They, she, my, my, my ex, I mean, she, we're ex, she's my ex-wife now. I mean, we're still really cool. We're still great friends. But uh, she was a trooper. Like, you oh, know, yeah. with the kids. We had just had another child. Like, she, she was, she crushed it. Like, I mean, I couldn't have asked for a better partner at the time. She was probably pretty mad at you. Probably mad. Oh, big time. Big time. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah. So all her stuff is going on. It's on a shipping container going to Japan. So what wound up happening? Did they go to Japan or did the beloved well, core take care of you and send your ship? <laughs> they, they, they were going back to Texas. And I, I was oh. in Iraq for nine months, I think it was. Uh, and then once I got back from that the the invasion i ended up executing those orders and went to japan with wow. them so yeah i just executed a few months a few months late it's not that's all all right Amen. that's awesome so yeah, it, was, it was crazy it was, it was a crazy time <laughs> how many tours did you do uh i ended up doing two uh no seven tours all right so we'll start with the first tour okay so that was oif one <laughs> uh it was it was it was intense but i mean i i remember right like there was hardly any sleep we were always on the move we didn't know what the enemy was capable of but come to find out a lot of them were were surrendering they were giving up like hey you know uh you know they want to fight i mean they see the americans coming and we've got food and water and they don't have those things so it, it was super easy uh like i mean they some some units still did fight a lot, but the majority of the enemy they just they they just weren't into it because uh you know what we brought to the table. It wasn't until my second deployment that we started seeing people from other countries come in, you know, like uh like yeah, man, you know Syria. Yeah, the Mujahideen, yeah, they were coming from Iran, Syria, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, like just all over the world. I think we even we even saw people from uh like Russians and and you know just 
all these different countries coming in just to fight us. Freedom wow. Fight. So, you know, I think I'll put a little bit of input in here because when people are talking about weapons of mass destruction, the, the definition of weapons of mass destruction could be as simple as a plan to so carry out devastation upon mm-hmm. America. And I mean, you got stoner kids just sitting in their fucking mom's basement talking about shit like, like that. So if you think the enemies of the United States government didn't have plans like that, because I, I remember specifically seeing blueprints of it was a chemical nerve agent, uh, chemical warfare mixing contraption. So it would be like two tankers that would pull up together and then they'd connect, mix chemical nerve agents and then carry on to deploy said chemical nerve agents. I think they also had uh, advisors, like contract advisors out there where they Mm -hmm. electrified uh, marshes or they flooded like an entire battlefield and then they just dropped like 10 amps (laughs) into (laughs) the flooded water. So when the troops tried to come across the battle, I forget if that was Iraq versus Iran back in the day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, they, yeah, they they do all kinds of. I don't want to say it's neat, but it's very creative. What what people can each other. <laughs> oh yeah, but it's the biggest innovation ever because not only does it put the the stress on the population to be able to innovate to survive, you know, or get knocked out of their comfort zone because in in uncomfortable in uncomfortable environments is when people are able to grow the most and is that absolutely disgusting field in nature but it's also darwinism right survival of the fittest. Oh, absolutely. so you get that adrenaline kick in that need to survive the next thing you know people are coming up with crazy upon crazy <laughs> innovation and mm-hmm. it's not put forth in the best manner but at the same time who am i to say what's needed and what's needed yep so i don't know man it's i mean can you imagine if if man could put half of that creativity into helping each other instead of killing each other it would the, the world would be great oh absolutely but at the same time darwinism has to prevail so in a, a super lackadaisical uh, living environment you get what america is going through today or maybe i don't know amsterdam or a couple of these other weird countries that kind of went off the chart in uh, the spectrum but yeah. You know, I always thought the Marine Corps was going to be able to teach me how to survive and then always stay alpha, you know, but the reality of the situation was a little bit different for me. I just didn't know how to function properly. I mean, the Marine Corps has got that elitist attitude, right? Like dirty civilians. Fucking, you never want to be like civilian. People like Chinese are going to come through the East Coast because all those kids know how to do is tie their shoes and do their homework. Mm-hmm. Type deal. <laughs> and that, that was something that my uh, NCO was saying a long time ago. And he's like, you guys better learn quick. He's like, <laughs> we're not your parents. We shouldn't even have to teach you this shit. You should know it already. I'm like, okay. God damn. But, um, so let's go over the surrender of the Iraqi troops. That's uh, Saddam Hussein's Republican Guard. Uh-huh. What other what, what branches was, did they have? Uh man, they had the the Republican Guard, they had the Medina Division, uh they had the the Fedayeen, uh they had, you know, of course they had all the artillery 
regiments and shit like that. They had, you know, tank battalions and divisions and things. So, I mean, I, like I said, I, I thought they were going to fight us a lot harder than what they did, especially the Fedayeen. You know, they were, they were supposed to be like this elite, like the Marine Corps of, of Iraq, but, uh, it actually turned out not to be. I mean, I don't know if it's because we were moving so fast or, or what, but yeah, they, they really didn't have any kind of will to fight. But it doesn't mean I, I wasn't scared shitless. I was like, oh man, like these guys are good. I've heard about them. <laughs> so what, what was your first contact with them? Was it just surrender or was there resistance or? Uh, my, my first contact with those guys, they, they surrendered. I, I want to say it was like probably about 80 people, 90 people. That surrendered, wow. and they they yeah they walk right up to, to our lines. We're like, hey, we don't want none. What town was that? Oh man, it was right outside. Uh, I want to say it was on Nazaria, maybe. So it, that that was the first big city that we had gotten heavy contact in. Uh, like that was the first time I'd ever been shot. Like that 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 firefight right there is what made everything real for me. Goddamn. But yeah. They were using mostly Soviet weapons. Yeah, you know, AK forty sevens, uh RPKs, AK uh yeah, AKs, RPKs, uh RPGs, uh was it the you know, regular cruiser weapons from there, like just all the regular Soviet stuff. Gotcha. But no Chinese communist stuff, no European stuff. Uh no, not yet. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it, was, so, it wasn't until uh, the actual we started dealing with the insurgency that they some of them were were a little more sophisticated. So you could tell that you know they were they had connections to other stuff, right? Uh, but yeah, for the most part, the the Iraqi military was really poorly equipped. Like a lot of their equipment was already broken down. The tanks were were broken down. A lot of the tanks that we came across. So sounds like uh, the Marine Corps. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like if they only knew. <laughs> but hey. but yeah, I mean, uh, like I said, I mean, e- even us, like you know, and and this is kind of known. I'm not sure how well known it is, but you know, the advance of the United States into Iraq was we we got spread so thin because the line was moving so fast that a lot of our supply lines couldn't keep up. So we were kind of dealing with the same thing when you think about it, you know, if vehicles broke down, we would have to either destroy them in place or, you know, wait for another unit to come up and then take, you know, try and fix them however they could. But uh, nine times out of 10, we did, we weren't fixing things ourselves. We were continuing to move. Damn. So how many miles um, inland did you go from the border? Or did you start uh, at the Lenal- border, or where was your staging point? Uh, in Kuwait. Okay. Yep, and then yeah, ended in ended in in Baghdad, and then uh, that was when I got to come back to the United States, advance party because I had orders that I was going to execute. Oh. So that got me that got me an early ticket home, if that's what you want to call it. <laughs> well, there you go, man. Yeah, yeah. it kind of worked out. You accomplished your mission, then at that point, the hearts and minds were supposed to be one? Or what was the mission of the Marine Corps versus Army stationary? Uh, it was it was supposed to, well, back then it was to stabilize the country, right? Like we had come in, we had, you know, uh, 
you know, remove the, the government, quote unquote, from power or whatever. So it was supposed to stabilize. But I mean, like I said, that's when all the insurgents from other countries started pouring in. Because I think we're and and this is just my speculation, right? This is my opinion, but I think the the America's lack of being able to secure the borders right away allowed for a lot of the insurgents and all the freedom fighters from other countries to flow in and and that and and we paid we paid for that for a very long time was there ever ever an attempt to secure the border not that i know of not not for me (laughs) Mm. i mean because the the border was so porous man it's it's thousands and thousands of miles of of just bordering countries i mean you have you have syria right there i on my last deployment in the military, I was out on the Syrian border in, in a small town called Huseba. Uh, and even that border, people would drive over the ditch that separated Iraq from Syria. And, you know, they were moving weapons into and out of the country. And there were times where this one time, and, and, and it's funny, right? Another funny story. Uh, we had this be on the lookout or a bolo for a vehicle right? It was, a, it was a white truck, a white cage truck, right? That had one headlight missing. And that's where they, they were putting rockets in there. And they were driving that truck over the border from Syria into Iraq. And then, uh, you know, taking weapons to the insurgency. So one day we're out on patrol, we're in, we're in our Humvees and we see this damn truck, right? And we verify, we're like, hey, this truck is missing a light. Let's get them, right? So we punched it. Like our, our, you know, we're going as fast as we could. And you can't just blow up anything. You have to get like positive identification. The only thing we had to go off of is, hey, this truck is missing a headlight. So you don't want to blow somebody up that's just missing a headlight. So we had to catch this guy in order to verify that it was him, right? So we start chasing him. The guy takes off. He's probably going about the top speed of his vehicle is probably about 85 miles an hour. Uh, unfortunately, our top speed was about 70 miles an hour. <laughs> so the guy managed to get away, and, that, and we used to, we would call that the slow speed chase. But <laughs> so yeah, that's how that's how porous the borders were, were, and how easy it was to bring things into and out of the country. Dude, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. They um, there were rumors that a bunch of the chemical weapons that apparently never existed escape through that Syrian border. Yeah, I can I can neither confirm nor deny. But yeah, it's it's freaky. <laughs> well didn't they find like uh sarin nerve gas or something in Syria like, seven years later? Uh Bashar al Assad or Al yeah, Bashar al Assad, the, the president of uh of Syria I believe during the Obama administration used chemical weapons on his people. Mm. Yeah. And that was a uh, Russian chemical nerve nerve agent. Wait, what, I what don't kind know. of chemical? I, I oh, man, I forget what it was. I know it was a nerve agent. I remember which one. I don't know if it was uh, VX or one of the other ones. But yeah, he he did use weapons of mass destruction on some people. Where he got them from, I will not speculate. <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure they had a Russian contractor. They parked some kind of mobile chemical destruction vehicle outside the coast of Cyprus. Mm-hmm. And they were destroying whatever chemicals they had in there. Yeah. I was it's, convinced it's... for sure it was gonna was gonna eat it, bro. 
I thought so too, man. I mean, he was the entire, the, the world community was like, Hey, you know, let's go get this guy. He just used chemical weapons on his people after, uh, after, uh, desert operation, uh, desert, desert shield and desert storm. Uh, when Iraq invaded Kuwait after we fought the Iraqis back, uh, Saddam Hussein used those same weapons against the Kurdish people up in the northern part of Iraq. Mm. So, like I said, it's it's funny how that works. <laughs> there was proof of that. Was that uh, mustard gas or was that nerve agent? Or? I was. It, I think I want to say it was nerve agent. Hmm. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to look that up. But you know, uh, whenever we got into Iraq, the Kurdish people in Iraq were. I wouldn't say. I, I don't want to say that they that they were really receptive to us, but they 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 weren't fighting as hard, right? Like they a lot of them abused. still had, yeah, they, they had, a, there was no love loss between them and the government. So yeah, it was, it's, it's crazy, man. The, 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 how things work on that side of the world, especially in that area right there is, is just insane. Like the, the amount of of things that happen like you know just bad guy things or or how shitty governments over there are able to control their people and then whenever those governments get you know taken out or replaced or whatever it's ju it's just utter chaos right so it's you know it's it's almost like taking the lesser of two evils i mean we saw it in uh, in Libya, we saw it in Iraq, you know, you see it in different countries, whenever you take out a, a dictator, you know, how it just destabilized everything. But these dictators at the same time, they're, they're, they're assholes, for lack of a better term to their own people, right? So it's, it's one of those down if you do down if you don't situations, because, uh, you know, going in there and what we did to Iraq, or in Iraq, paved way for ISIS to come up, right? And you have uh, al Baghdadi out there. So it's, it's, it's crazy, you know, that how one person can give some kind of stabilization to an area, but as soon as he takes it back, it just goes into utter chaos. And it's, uh, like I said, down if you do, down if you don't. Yeah, it's, that was a sad situation, watching everything kind of come to fruition upon, like, military withdrawal type deal. But, you know, everybody blamed the military-industrial complex repeatedly. And, oh, we're only at war for this or for that, to exercise our, our money or the taxpayers to be forced to purchase war efforts. And uh, like you said, unfortunately, you guys are big old meat targets over there for all these freedom fighters. If they wanted to get a piece of the infidel, you know, they knew mm -hmm. where to find them. And they didn't have to take some kind of plane and have to deal with TSA bullshit. All they had to do is drive over a ditch from Syria to Iraq. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, we can catch them. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying that, that, you know, somebody else down the road didn't catch them or, you know, they didn't start following this guy. I'm just saying that we couldn't catch them because we were slower than him. <laughs> Jeez. And yeah, you guys didn't have air support on that, that border either? You think that that border would be a hotbed of activity? Well, the the border was so porous. Everybody was trying to get as far inland as they could. You know, you don't want, you don't necessarily want to fight right there on the border because an insurgency uh, insurgents fight a lot different than conventional. So, uh, yeah, they're just trying to get their equipment as far inland as they could. 
So yeah, that's. No, and then, like I said, the border was so, you know, so long, it's, it's so far reaching that, you know, yeah, we, there was air out there, but it couldn't get to certain places fast enough. There's so many other operations going on. That it's just, it's lack of resources is what it is. Now, were you guys, you guys had interpreters and whatnot. So what was the main, um, you know, headline or what was the main propaganda that they would use to get freedom fighters to fight the Americans? Uh, you, if, if you, if you killed Americans, then you could go to heaven and you, and, and you would get 72 virgins. That was it, right? Just the, that, yeah. the religious. <laughs> well, well, I mean, most of it, you know, you've, you've got these, 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 you know, infidels coming in and, you know, trying to take over the motherland and, and things like that. But that was, that was our catchphrase, you know, Hey, kill Americans. You can get 72 virgins. Which oh I was yeah. Like, Man, how do, how do people buy that stuff? <laughs> they had Mad Dog Mattis talking about the new, um, the M4 lube was going to be made out of like pig oil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, keep yep. fucking around, fuck around and find out. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, they're really religious over there. So they believe anything you tell them. Oh man, what what do they call that when it's like it's sec, uh, sectarian? Are you talking about uh, how a they convince people thing? to do things? Yeah, well, uh, when instead of there being like political democracy, dictatorship, it's like uh, a religious state. I forget what the word they use for that. Oh yeah, I know it's not so common on Google anymore, but it's like uh, sectarian. Uh, no, it's not sectarian. It's, uh, I forget the word, but it's not sectarian. Uh, man, it'll, it'll come to me eventually. Yeah. <laughs> it was a word that was used a lot, man. I, I'm surprised that it's not. Radicalized. Yeah. Like Islamic state. Uh, are you talking about what? Instead of there being uh, any kind of educational doctrine, it's just all religious doctrine. Oh, that's uh, man, what is what is that word? Uh, duh, duh, duh. <laughs> man, I yeah, and I we used to hear it so much. Uh, Sharia law. Yeah, yeah, Sharia law. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Sharia law. So that the, how Sharia many other countries sh- was that active in? I was in a bunch What's of them. Sharia law was active in multiple countries. Everything from. Yemen was in Kuwait. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, I, so Sharia laws is very, it's it's very it's it's like our Ten Commandments, just a lot more of them, and you better do this, or you're gonna get your head chopped off. You know, so it's and, you know, it is every Muslim's duty to protect Muslim countries from infidels and especially foreign invaders and and things like that. So, uh, I mean, it goes all the way down to. Uh, women shouldn't show any skin. Uh, you know, women can't go to school. You know, things like that. So Sharia law is is very broad reaching, and it it controls a lot of facets of, of people's lives over there. Yeah, I mean, I, I get along with Muslim people so well. Like, just I educated myself on the situation significantly. So whenever like I'll talk to some people speaking in Arabic. I always bring up uh, the version of the Quran where uh, the women are like a broken rib and they'll never be 
fixed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and they laugh and they laugh and they're like, oh, very good. And it's funny. I, I, that's one of the only things I know I would cry out. It's probably blasphemous, but no. this is what it is. I like that. Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. But yeah, it's, uh, you know, they're in the Stone Age because of their educational process. You know, I can't say any one way of education is better than another. You know, uh, you'd think uh, up to date, like cutting edge medical technology would want to be embraced and science. I'm sure they don't like our politics, but. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, it's sad to see where they're at now, right? And I don't want to say it's because of Sharia law, because, you know, some elements of Sharia law are, it's it's based in in good, right? Just, you know, like the Bible. The Bible says, hey, you know, you should cut people's heads off. We just don't do that because cutting people's heads off is wrong, right? Uh, they take it to another level, but because of extremists, right? You You've got your... Your people who are hardcore, you know, Sharia law is the way. This is how we interpret it, and you have to do it like that. It's real black and white for those people, right? So it's really set civilization back over there, in in my opinion, right? It set them back a lot because, I mean, at one point, I mean, think about it. You know, math was invented by Muslims, by the people over there, right? Arabs. So, uh, I mean, th- there could have been a lot more, but it's it's – and again, it goes back to the ugly, ugliness of humanity that just holds, uh, you know, entire civilizations back. Right. Yeah. Even uh, who was the guy in Yemen? Um, not Sharif. Was that, um, the guy who got toppled as the dictator over there? Are you talking about? Uh, Man, they got all these names. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know who you're talking about. <laughs> it's not Yasser Fat. It's not fucking. No. Man, I I was talking about this just the other day at work too. Uh, 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 yeah. I mean, I, I can edit this out, but it won't it won't be realistic. <laughs> 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 yeah, but that um, Yasser Arafat. No, it wasn't Yasser Arafat. No, the guy's name started with an M. Um, not Musharif. No, it's. Um... But he, the guy, got dragged through town. They're stabbing him in the butthole with like knives. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm looking it up right now. His name was. Yeah, uh, his... Oh, uh, Gaddafi. Gaddafi, yeah. 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 Mohammed so... Abu. Uh, Minyar Al Qaddafi. Al Qaddafi. Yeah, yeah, they, they, yeah, that was they did they did that guy pretty bad. <laughs> oh yeah, well he, uh, you know, it's funny. I I used to um, I used to rent a house from this Italian business guy. He was older in age, he was like eighty five, and uh, when he was a young boy out of Italy, well, he went to Italy for a while. But then he went to Yemen to work in the oil fields. And then he worked in the oil fields for like a year in Yemen. It was a long time ago, probably like 50s or 60s. And then he left. 
and 20 years later, they went to Italy to try to find him. And then they found out he lived in America and they sent him a letter. And they said, hey, we have your, uh, I don't know, what do they call it? Uh, pension from the oil fields. And they sent them $20,000 in the mail. Like they went out of their way to find this guy. And he was like, so when Gaddafi passed away, he was actually super sad. He was like, oh, he was a good guy. He always treated me good. It was because of that guy that they paid me. And I was like, oh, all right. You know, everybody's got a different story. He probably wasn't that great back in the day. <laughs> you know, you know. <laughs> as they get older, they get more irritable, more power they have. But right. that place has just been what's considered like a cesspool of, you know, totalitarianism, extremism, terrorism, you know, a place that is sourcing capabilities and access to hurt America. I mean, at least that's what I grew up to believe my whole life. Yeah. And uh, I never got the chance to visit any of these places. And, uh, you know, I can't say that I'm too upset about it. <laughs> <laughs> You're not missing out on much. <laughs> no, no. All right. So you accomplished your first tour. You got extradited immediately back to Japan, right? Did mm -hmm. you go right from the Middle East to Japan or did you go stateside first? No, I... Uh... I came back stateside and then I went to Japan, but I was only here for a little bit. It was only enough time for me to check out, get my family back and then, and then head over to, uh, to Okinawa. But then when I, as soon as I got there, so I, 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 I got stationed with third Marine division comm company, right? Which total non-combat unit, you know, it, it was, it was a chill unit. Uh, as soon as I got there, they were like, Oh, you've got combat experience. We're going to put you on a joint task force to go to the Philippines <laughs> with uh, all these Navy SEALs. <laughs> so so I, I ended up uh, going on a joint task force with those guys for a little bit. Oh, damn. Now, mm -hmm. did they attach you to recon to do like JSOC? Like joint no, we, we were, we were a, a, a standalone support unit for those guys. Hmm. Uh, so, Ooh. yeah, so I ran communications for those guys. Okay. Yeah. Did you do was, a good job? I guess so. I mean, I mean, they didn't say I didn't, so I'll I'll, I'll use that as a, as a certain metric, a metric of success there. <laughs> yeah, sometimes hearing nothing is the perfect thing to hear. Yeah, I mean, I mean, because usually in the military, it's like, hey man, you suck. <laughs> then and you're like, man, I suck. <laughs> but they I don't, don't say anything. Suck. I guess it's a good job. Yeah. How do I not suck? Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I did that with them. And then, uh, I came back and I went back to third Marine division comm company as soon as they chopped me back to my unit mm -hmm. and I got there and they were like, Hey, we're open. The Marine Corps starting these units back up and they're opening a brand new unit up called fifth air naval gunfire liaison company. Do you want to try out? <laughs> right. And I was like, duh. Okay. And I, I uh, went and tried out. Uh, yeah, I graduated top of my class. <laughs> so I ended up back with, uh, and these guys, they run air and artillery and naval gunfire for partnered forces, you know, other, other branches of service uh, to run Marine air and artillery and things like that, as well as partnered nations. So I ended up working with a bunch of different countries running American air for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh American Air, was yeah. that a movie with Mel Gibson? Uh are you talking about Con Air with uh No, no, it's called 
uh, Air America, I think it was. I don't, I don't know. They were running guns in another, like, Klaus. Oh, you know what? I did see that movie, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's old. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I remember that one, baby. <laughs> but no, we didn't run guns. We ran just straight up hate and discontent. <laughs> oh, there you go. That's where they do it, though. Yeah. And, but you yeah, know, so, uh, back, you know, back I... to touch on, uh, like, your your performance during run those joint operations, like, the best part about the military is if somebody comes up to you and tells you they suck, if they really want to take that extra initiative to do it, they better be able to tell you how to do it better. Because oh, yeah. if, if they can't, then they're just fucking themselves. Like, that's the difference between like civilian occupation hazard and like educational therapy in, in the military. Like, mm-hmm. oh, if someone's going to come up and critique you, they better be able to tell you how to do it better. Otherwise, they're just full of shit. Absolutely. But I, I chalk it up to, you know how when people talk talk shit about uh, NFL players, like, oh, this quarterback sucks. Yeah. I'm like, well, I mean, he sucks enough to make millions of dollars a year doing exactly <laughs> what he's doing. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> like, what's your metric of measuring how bad someone sucks? <laughs> that's true. It's, uh, that's kind of a toxic habit that Americans have these days. But oh, yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> So yeah, if nobody says anything to you, either you suck so bad they don't want to talk to you, or you don't suck. Yeah. So I just I just take the latter, yeah. Dude, I'm gonna tell you, you probably don't suck. That's all right. Oh, thank I'll, you. I'll take that shot. So, so I remember right this one time, and I I don't know if this is a metric of me sucking or not because I I failed, but I didn't fail at this, right? I remember we were in Thailand, uh, and we were. We were doing operations out there, you know, it was, it was, it was a training mission. Uh, so we're out there working with these guys and we were supposed to be out there for a certain amount of days and then get extracted on, let's just say Friday, right? I don't remember exactly what date it is, but say Friday. Wait, is this the 11... jungle survival course? No, 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 no. This was uh training with, with uh, the Thai military. The yeah. jungle warfare training center was in Okinawa in Japan. Well, no, they did a, a joint operation. Um, with thailand troops as well uh-huh, guys, yeah that that op is called cobra gold cobra, yeah did you guys drink cobra blood too uh, i never did i don't know if that's just like a like a propaganda thing or whatever but yeah i, I never got a chance to <laughs> i don't know cobra gold all right all right i'm sorry, I'm sorry I, to and I've, I've, i and i've seen those pictures right so i don't know if it's like the ceremonial thing specifically for newspapers and stuff but every oh, time man. i did that op yeah i never drank any cobra blood well, there was, um, I know the Indian military, like joint operations, but this is for, uh, special operations. Uh, I've heard stories that they have a ceremony where you have to eat a cobra venom sack. Mm-hmm. And that's like in the specific culture, in the specific regions, um, way of becoming a man. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you and, can go ahead. Yeah. I, I guess <laughs> I don't have my man card. <laughs> Oh, I don't know. The dudes I talked to, were like, I, I just, you know, they talked me into it. I did it. But. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I don't have a right. car. That's, that's nice. So people can't pull it. There you go. Okay. So <laughs> but, like, uh, you guys didn't have to learn how to eat bugs or eat snakes or nothing. Gotcha. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We, I mean, we had to learn all that. Like, hey, what plants can you eat? What bugs can you eat? You know, stuff like that. Like, I, I mean, I've eaten scorpions and different kinds of worms and, you know, caught a chicken and, and you know, you kill it out there and, and you, you prep it and all that sort of stuff. But you eat in the field, you 
you know, there are all, all kinds of other field survival techniques, but yeah, never, never drank cobra blood. Gotcha. All right. Yeah. I always, I always, I always try to cook my meals. <laughs> so it's a myth. I gotcha. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. Like I said, I don't know. I just never did it. Get some snake hepatitis out there. <laughs> How do you explain that? Who shit? knows? <laughs> who, who knows what you could get out there? Well, uh, by the what? base, by the base I grew up in, there was this one guy. Uh, his last name was Burkhart. He was, he was a gangster who got arrested in like the sixties for laundering money and being just mad violent. And they sentenced him to a Marine Corps tour of duty in Vietnam. And he went there and fucking loved it. Became a career Marine. Got shot multiple times, hit under bodies and whatnot. And he has, a, <laughs> he has a form of hepatitis named after him from all the blood. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like, huh. Legit, because I've seen him get out of so many court cases for his accolades of being a Marine. This is before 9-11. Now nobody gives a huh. fuck if you serve in the, in the Marine Corps. Like, the yeah. record don't, your record don't matter no more. You're going to jail. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> so, sorry. Uh, I'm sorry to keep it through. Yeah, so, no, 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 no. It's, it's cool. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm, we're on this op and we're supposed to go home. The trucks are supposed to get there, say, at 1100. Right. And then one of the, one of the senior leadership comes up to me and he, he was like, Hey man, where are those trucks? And this is already like, it's probably like one o'clock already, 1300. Right. He's like, Hey, where are those trucks? And I was like, I don't know. Like I, and he was like, we'll call back to battalion and find out where these trucks are at. So we can get out of here. We've been ready to go for like a few hours now. So I was like, okay, so I'm trying, I'm calling, I'm calling, I'm on satellite communications, right? Calling, 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 nothing. And I was like, Hey man, nobody's picking up. And he was like, well, keep trying it. So I was trying everything I could, and finally somebody answered on the other end of the radio, right? I'm like, hey, man, this is, you know, this is this unit. Uh, we were supposed to get picked up at 1100. By now it's 1400, you know, requesting trucks that we were supposed to get XYZ, XYZ. So uh, they were like, Roger that. We're on it. We're going to send trucks. So the trucks come rolling up, and the first one comes up to me. He's like, hey, man, great job, uh, you know, getting these trucks. And I was like, oh, no worries. He was like, just to ask you, how did you get a hold of the regiment who was in Okinawa? How did you get hold of them? <laughs> right. And we're in Thailand. We're in a totally different country. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he was like, you called regiment. Regiment called battalion and battalion sent the trucks. How would you do that? <laughs> I was like, uh, SATCOM? <laughs> you know? I thought I was talking to battalion. Apparently, I talked to a completely different country to get those trucks over there, which is, which is kind of neat. <laughs> yeah, man. Just proves that you're good at your job, dude. I, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> Keep working until, until you, uh, so something happens, I guess. That's the way to do it. So what was your second tour like? Uh, well, I'll, I'll always say my tours, like my tours in Iraq, Right. And then I always clump my other tours in there as well. So, uh, you know, the, the JTF to, to the Philippines, we were doing ops against, uh, the ASG or Abu Sayyaf group and doing ops against the MIOF, which is the Moral Islamic Liberation Front, uh, you know, to try and train the Filipino Marines to deal with, with, with those different insurgent groups. Because by then they were already trying to take over the southern islands of the Philippines. Oh yeah, I right. forgot about that. Mhm. Mm and then my next one was uh 
Wait, was the Dirt Day there yet? No, no, it was uh, Gloria Royo at the time. Oh. Uh huh. So uh, the the one after that was uh, I was on the combined joint task force that uh, supported the tsunami relief in 2004, the end of 2004, and that was that was crazy. That was it was death on a biblical scale. I think 300,000 people died in that tsunami. Damn. So that was, it was crazy. I remember we got there and we were standing on the beach and uh, you know, this is, this is probably about a week or two weeks after the tsunami had happened. We're standing on the beach and I'm like, wow, you know, look at all this debris, you know, and, and there's debris on the beach for as far as you could see. And I'm standing there and, and one of the interpreters was like, yeah, there used to be a village here and there was nothing. I mean, there's some trees there's some grass and there's just debris. And as I looked and we're standing up on this berm, looking down at the beach, as I looked into uh, at the debris, you could see bodies in there just scattered for as far as you could see. But they were so bloated, so yeah. discolored that they actually blended in with all of uh, all surroundings. Of yeah, so that was that was pretty crazy. It was it was really bad. Like, uh, you know, they th- those people had they were in the surf for however long. Uh, a lot of people weren't coming to claim the people where their entire families were. You know, generations of people had died in that. So uh, just the amount of death was it was really sad. Uh, but it was it was so bad that we had to put mentholatum under our nose. Uh, you know, just to keep the stench of, of rotting humans, right? Because it's, it's, it's a different smell, right? And then when we got back to Japan, we had to, we, a lot of us burned our camis because you just couldn't get the smell out. Yeah. Yep. yeah it was very, very sombering. Yep. Did anybody give you tricks to try to get that smell out before you burned? <laughs> No, <laughs> no, we couldn't figure it out <laughs> yeah. because the smart people were walking around like the, the, the actual disaster relief groups and stuff. They were walking around with suits, like the, the chemical suits yeah, or whatever. Suits. Yeah. So they, they didn't have to deal with that shit and, and we're not smart enough. We're just like, all right. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. We're Marines, man. Let's <laughs> make it work. Do I need gloves? Hmm. Oh man. Yeah. So you guys were on body detail too or was it just No, we were so we ran the air for uh you know all the missions bringing supplies and stuff like that in. Uh yeah, so that that's what we did mainly. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like uh I mean we I mean and and that was that was our mission set, right? Like to to run air for foreign militaries and foreign partner forces. What kind of aircraft do you guys support? Oh man, anything with wings on it, uh, fixed wing, rotary wing, uh, you know, transports, all that, all that stuff. Nice. You got those Hercules 53Es. Mm-hmm. Yep, C130s. Uh, was it C17? The C5s. Yeah. All. Yeah. Nice. Mm-hmm. What uh, what air shirt did you guys use? Was it close uh, to the? Well, they they moved us around, so we went uh, Thailand, uh, Sri Lanka, Indonesia. So it's wherever they needed us, because we weren't a big unit at the time. We were we were still really small, so we got we got jerked around quite a bit. 
Yeah, it's easier to move the small groups, right? Yeah. I mean, it, the the funnest one, I mean, if you want to call it that, the fun, the funnest the one that we worked at was in Thailand because we got a lot of liberty out there and the beer's really cheap. Did they have lady boys out there? Uh, yeah, a lot of those. I, I often tell people the most beautiful women in Thailand are men. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. So this is definitely going to be a mature podcast. I got to accelerate this, this one. But. So, uh, you know, what did, what did you think of it politically as it was happening? What motivated your day from day to day for you to keep your mind out of the suck? Uh, one, my guys, uh, because they were, it was, it was, it's a volunteer unit, right? So those guys, they wanted to be there eager. Uh, and you know, the camaraderie that, that we had built in such a short amount of time in situations like that kept us really sane. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was the guys, it was definitely the guys. Right. And, you know, I was the second most senior guy out there. Uh, so keeping me busy and keeping those guys out of trouble it 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 kept my mind off a lot of things too (laughs) that's the way to do it man helping others always helps ourselves sometimes Mm -hmm. especially in the role of leadership like you were in so uh what kind of effect did you have at each station you know what do you feel that you accomplished The amount of supplies and the amount of aid we were able to bring to those people, right? Like, I mean, you got to think, you know, 300,000 people died in in a few different countries or in the span of a few different countries. Like those, those people were hurting, like they were hurting before, right? But now you have nothing. So the amount of supplies and food and water, fresh water, things like that, that we were able to bring to them made it all worth it because... I don't want to say we changed lives out there, but we definitely made a tough situation a little bit better. Right. And and it took a long time for them to recover, but, you know, just being able to help those people uh, with the disaster like that of, of, in my mind, right. Of a biblical proportion that like that uh, it, it, it really, it really made us feel good that we were able to help out. Dude, and that's awesome. I'm sure you guys made a massive difference. So let's go to your transition into civilian life. Uh, you have like a charity project going on right now, right? It's called Age for Change. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, so, so funny thing is, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I've had a Twitter account since probably like 2013, 2016, something like that, right? I've had it for a really long time and I was never really active on there. And then, you know, I joined the whole eight movement, the AMC meme stocks type thing, uh, because I was getting out of the military in 2008. And I, I say I got out of the military the same day that the housing market crashed. Right. So, uh, at a really tough time, I ended up having to go back overseas as a private military contractor just to survive. Cause I, I could not for the life of me find a job in the U S to survive. Right. So I see all these things happening again in the stock market. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to get in on this, right? So I joined the eight movement. And, you know, 
all the learning and all the meeting people and, and things like that just on Twitter. Right. And, and I'm also active on Reddit and Facebook and, and all the other platforms as well. But Twitter is where I really found a lot of connection because of Twitter spaces. Uh, so I remember, uh, was it last year, 2020 well December of 2021. Uh, a lot of a lot of people were talking. Oh, uh, let me let me back up. Right in October of 2021, uh, myself and a friend we put together uh, a SoCal Ape meetup. Right, so a lot of apes got together. We had a beer. We talked. We had a good old time. And one of the apes hit me up in December and said, "Hey, Stonk, we should have a toy drive where the apes give back." toys uh to underprivileged kids you know all that other stuff for the socal apes and i was like you know what that's a great idea like if we if we have this toy drive cool and and i'm i'm a part of the motorcycle club community and i'm used to doing uh toy drives we do toy drives every year so this guy hits me up and he's like hey man let's let's do a socal apes toy drive and i was like you know what let's do it so somebody else from florida had posted the apes should have a toy drive so i hit him up you know and i i replied to his tweet publicly the socal apes are already doing that <laughs> right so people from new york hit me up and said hey we want to get in on this too and you know uh apes from all over the country were like we want to get in on this and i was like get in on what and they were like aren't you the guy that's putting together the toy drive and I was like, no, I'm, I'm putting together a toy drive here in, in California, in, in Southern California. And they were like, okay, well, how do we help, <laughs> right? So I went to a really good friend of mine, low key. And I was like, hey, all these people want to get together and they want to have a toy drive, but I can't have, I can't coordinate this massive of a scale for something like this. And she was like, I can, you know, this, this is really easy for me. This is what I do. So, you know, we opened up some spaces. We started talking to a couple people and we ended up doing toy drives in seven cities and two countries right so i was like wow you know that 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 worked and then the very next day after we after we all did the toy drive more people were hitting me up saying hey when's the next uh the next charity event that you guys are going to do and i was like what do you mean you guys who is you guys and it was like you people that you you guys that put together the toy drive and now there was there was a group of about nine of us right so i was like i don't know so i went and i, I talked to loki again she was like well why don't we adopt some gorillas and i was like how the hell do you adopt a gorilla and she was like well there's a dm fossey gorilla fund in rwanda where you can adopt gorillas you know and, and of course adoption doesn't mean they're going to come sleep at my house that means you know we buy them food and medical supplies and stuff like that so i was like okay you know we'll do that so we ended up having an auction on Twitter spaces. Uh, we auctioned off NFTs, movie memorabilia, stuff like that. Uh, so we set out to to raise about, I think it was like $80, right? So that we could adopt a gorilla because that's how much it costs to adopt a gorilla. So we had the auction. Uh, at the end of the auction, by the time the auction was over, I think the auction ran for two hours. By the time the auction was over, we raised almost $3,000. So we were able to adopt every every gorilla that they had up for adoption, which included babies as well, right? Mom, like uh, mother-child gorillas, I guess. Uh, and we were also able to get uh, 
the scientists. We were able to get them more computers or new computers. And we were also able to get the anti-poaching teams new GPS devices, uh, tents, and other camping equipment and stuff like that, which was really cool, right? So we did that and we blasted it out. Hey, we adopted gorillas. Woohoo. And then the very next day after we completed that campaign, I was getting more DMs like, hey, when's the next charity event, <laughs> right? So I went to the same, the same group of nine and I was like, hey, people are asking me again, like, when's the next charity event? And that's when Loki was like, well, let's, let's create a DM group. So we created a DM group and she named it Apes for Change. Uh, and then we ran another campaign where we gave, uh, we had everybody donate shorts and this is already near in the summertime. Uh, we had people donate shorts to homeless people because, you know, it's summer, it's hot. So we, we call it a shorts drive and there was other clothes involved as well. So we, we did that. Uh, Valentine's Day last year, we did Share Your Love with the Movies where we donated uh, movie AMC gift cards to frontline medical workers. Uh, we planted, we, we did a campaign where we planted a tree in a botanical garden here in San Diego. We also raised money to uh, plant coral reef gardens in the Caribbean. Uh, and, and so it's, it's ballooned out, you know, and Apes for Change actually became an organization. And the end of last year, we ended up, uh, we set out to, to, we had a campaign where we tried to raise enough money to, to dig one well for a village somewhere in East Africa. We ended up being able to dig three wells, uh, in, in different, uh, schools in Kenya where they never had fresh water before. And then we ran a campaign with Operation Underground Railroad to rescue a victim of human trafficking. Uh, and then we were able to raise enough money to also get them extra therapy sessions as well as three months of groceries. So it's, it's become this huge thing just off of somebody saying, hey, we should do a toy drive. Dude, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, yeah I mean, that, that was all in, in the first year. <laughs> so we're in year two right now. <laughs> Dude, that's awesome. You guys are definitely killing it out there. It's good to see people bringing Web3 together, you know, bringing communities from Twitter together and trying to help others. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. Not enough people are, are taking that initiative, but of course it's the does who do it. Yeah, I mean, every every time we do something, I'm like, I don't know if we could pull this off. And then we end up pulling off more than what we set out to do. Oh, which, yeah. So it's, it's pretty cool. And it's it's not us. Like, and I tell people, like, it's not us that does it. I mean, we, we are just facilitators of the giving nature of humans, right? Like, people care. Like, the vast majority of humans care about the person that are left and their right. It's just a squeaky wheel that gets the grease, right? So by just creating an avenue to where people are able to give back to humanity. It, it, it makes it happen. And people are more than willing to come out and help. And it's, it's, it's amazing. That's awesome, man. So uh, tell me a little bit more about the human trafficking thing. Cause I, I've heard you touch on it before. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so we partnered with uh, a nonprofit called operation underground railroad and the, where it started is a buddy of mine uh, goes by Siggy with Doge on Twitter. 
he had conspiracy. He, he always does conspiracy theory spaces. And one of the conspiracy theories was human trafficking happens at Comic-Con in San Diego. So, you know, I was in there and, and you know, we're talking about this conspiracy and it, it turns out that human trafficking happens a lot of different places around the world, not just here in San Diego at Comic-Con, right? So I took that idea or that conversation to the other board members at Apes for Change and they were like, well, let's do something about it. Let's do something. So that's where that campaign came from, right? And through my research, uh, I found out that human trafficking brings in about $158 billion a year to, you know, around the world. Uh, millions of people are trafficked, not just women, but you have men, boys, and little girls. Uh, some are, you know, forced into marriage. Some are forced into the sex trade. Other people are, uh, are trafficked for organs, right? Organ harvesting, organ trafficking. Uh, you know, there's ritualistic sacrifice of people in the world. So it was this huge thing. And the more we got into it, the more we were like, wow, we really got to do something about it. The largest event in the United States that, that is the biggest, I guess, offender of human trafficking takes place at the Super Bowl every year, right? And, and I mean, it could be anyone. It could be people selling shirts or scalping tickets or, you know, the escort services that happen in the, the city where the Super Bowl is taking place. Like, you know, it's it's broad reaching. So, you know, we got with Operation Underground Railroad and talked to their chief legal officer who she goes by the name of Ali Serrano. Uh, we were able to get her on uh, on a Twitter live on a fa on a Twitter or yeah, the, a Twitter space. Facebook Live, as well as our YouTube. And we interviewed her and she was like, yeah, man, like, you know, she was able to verify all the data that, that we had collected and give us extra data as far as uh, what takes place with human trafficking. So we were like, screw it, let, let's do it. Like, let's, let's have a campaign and let's save someone. So uh, like I said, we, we ended up raising some money and that funded uh, an entire rescue operation. Now, a rescue operation is everything from you know, having intelligence people on the ground looking for victims of human trafficking, uh, you know, paying for plane tickets, paying for rental vehicles, paying for, you know, uh, the raid to actually take place. And then it also paid for uh, therapy sessions for the victim. It paid for groceries for the victim. It also... It, it, it does a lot of things. It wasn't just, hey, we're going to go there, get them, and then re-release them into society. So uh, that small campaign was able to to essentially save someone, which which is, is really neat, right? I mean, just nine people coming together saying, hey, I think we can do something about it, and, and we did. And that was, the, that was the human trafficking campaign. Dude, that's great. Man, it's... Uh... It's important for people to open their eyes and realize some of the stuff that that's going on right under everybody's nose. <clears throat> uh, what kind of cases do you normally get? Are they, you know, um, you know, battered woman type deals? Like, are they child trafficking? Is it like indentured servitude? Is it like sexual abuse? Is it? You know, oh, yeah. it, it's it's oh, it's broad. Like I I forget what the percentage is. I think twenty one percent of women are forced into uh, marriage, 
right? Uh, a huge percentage is, is sex trafficking uh, and then indentured servitude. So pretty like slavery. So, I mean, it's, it's scary what humans do to each other <laughs> just for the sake of a buck. Right. So, yeah, absolutely. Oh man. It's definitely a sad circumstance. So, uh, now that you're in civilian life, you're also into NFTs, right? Um, yeah, I, I I got into NFTs. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, yeah. So, uh, before my stock market adventure started, I was into crypto. Uh, you know, I saw Bitcoin taking off. I want to learn more about Bitcoin. I invested in a, a couple of other different cryptos uh, and did really well. Right. And then, you know, into the stock market. So I started doing uh, a friend of mine, her name, she goes by Loki and myself. We started hosting Twitter spaces where we would teach about certain things. And one thing that one person asked if I could teach was NFTs. And I was like, well, I don't know about NFTs. So let me go and start studying about these and how they work and things like that. So that was the beginning of my journey with NFTs, uh, you know, just finding out. And it's not so much the art, like I love the art, I love the utility, but the amount of things and where NFT growth, I think, is going to go in the next 10 years. I think there's huge potential, not just art, not just music, but I'm talking about the medical industry, uh, you know, being able to track important documents and, and just the amount of things that you can do, I feel with NFTs is intense. So, you know, getting in early and, and learning how they work and how to create them and things like that, I think is, is something that more people should be getting into. Yeah, I definitely believe that. So at ownyourkeys.com, you know, we help people uh, learn how to manage their own cryptocurrency, get into DeFi, download either software or hardware wallet, and uh, mm-hmm. they'll be able to explore or build come up with ideas contribute and you know figure figure out the future because i truly believe that this technology will be incorporated in a lot of things in the future it's a disruptive technology and it's getting a lot of pressure on it and you being a marine i'm sure that you could understand that kind of pressure is only going to refine something into a diamond so Mm -hmm. I, I wholeheartedly agree. But Stock man, thank you so much for coming on here and talking with me. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Thanks like for having me you. on, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd like to have you on again when you launch your own NFT project. You know what I mean? Oh, heck yeah. You know it. Yeah. I mean, uh, Apes for Change is, is we want to launch launch an NFT project this year. So maybe I'll come on and, and, and show it when it gets closer to the date. Yeah, we could definitely do something like that. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. But aside from that, I look forward to having you're going to be the first of a long line of veterans I'm going to have on this podcast. I'm just going to pick their brain, and talk about stuff, get all hyped up, try to feed yeah. off their motivation because I have not been motivated over the past few months, man. It's always well, good to talk it, to somebody. Yeah, man. Hey, and if, if ever you need anything, man, and, and this goes for anybody, like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a DM or a phone call away if you know my number. So. That's it, you, bro. Yeah, you you you've you've listened to me rant and bitch and moan and complain. I'm I'm more than willing to hear you. <laughs> I'll be your shoulder to lean on. Absolutely, Nina, me.
when you're not strong. <laughs> I'll be your friend. I'll be carry on. <laughs> but we also have a, a veteran support line, and the Discord goes highly underused. But you are in charge of that, my friend. That is is your thing to have. So you know, I'd like to fill that up with a bunch of dysfunctional veterans. They can't fucking fool me. I know they're hiding under every fucking rock and crane. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot of us out there. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we're trying to build up the resources there. And uh, we got a charity. We're kind of raising some money. Anything just to buy somebody a hot cup of coffee or, you know, pay for an extended phone bill, talking to somebody and make sure that they, uh, you know, they're not practicing drill and chamber and a weapon in an apartment building somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, bro. thanks for thanks for getting the word out, brother. I, I really yeah. appreciate it. 